But I want to begin our time uh, by sharing a, a story that R. Kent Hughes had this to say about the most famous living author of the 1930s named William Somerset Maugham. William, known as Willie, was an accomplished novelist, playwright, and short story writer. His novel of human bondage is a classic. His play, The Constant Wife, has gone through thousands of stagings. He was a man who lived for his own refined tastes, his comfort, and his sexual perversions. In 1965, at the age of 91, he was, a still, he was still a fabulously rich man, although he had not written a word in years. He still received over 300 fan letters a week. What had brought Willie Somerset Maugham, what had life brought William Somerset Maugham? The London Times carries this excerpt by his nephew, Robin Maugham. I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remembered that the villa itself and the wonderful garden I could see through the windows, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean, were worth over several hundred thousand pounds, which would be close to a million dollars in modern currency, and this was in 1965. Willie had 11 servants, including his cook Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera. He dined off silver plates, was waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henry, his footman, but it no longer meant anything to him. The following afternoon, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible which had very large print. He looked horribly withered, and his face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across the quotation, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, dear Robin, that the text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. Robin Mogham goes on to describe an empty, bitter old man who repeatedly fell into shrieking terrors, crying, Go away, I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet, I tell you. William Willie Mogham was a man who gained the whole world, yet forfeited his soul. And the verse that haunted him all the way to his grave is actually in the passage that we're going to study today as we continue the second part of the message called the high cost of following Christ. Willie Mogham in many ways is like the rich young ruler that we're going to encounter in Mark chapter 10. The things of this world and his desire to pursue them prevented him from following Christ. Last week, we covered the first reality that Jesus foretells related to the high cost of following him. And we learned that the highest cost of following Christ was actually paid by the Messiah himself. And we looked closely at his sufferings. And the, his sufferings, we, we saw, included both his rejection and his death. And we talked about and answered questions like, what is so significant about who Christ was rejected by? 
What does God require spiritually for anyone to stand in his presence? We learn that Christ's death was a penal, substitutionary, atoning death. And we talked about the significance of each of those terms and how they apply to our salvation. If you weren't here for that message, you're invited to go back online and you can listen to it in its entirety. Because that message actually is a part of of the text that we're going to continue to study this morning that, that frames and provides the picture and provides context to our cost, our personal cost. Let's begin by reading our passage in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. And this is what it says from the New American Standard. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So these are the verses that we covered last week, okay? And starting in verse four is gonna, uh, 34 is going to be our study today. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. And depending on which translation of the Bible you have, I included, uh, may have included, if you have the NASB, chapter 9, verse 1. And as I mentioned last week, this is all one unit of thought in the writer John Mark's mind. And so we want to keep it together. And the reason we want to do that is because what Jesus shares in verses 31 through 33, again, frames what he's about to share in verses 34 and following. He's already addressed the disciples' false understanding of Messiahship when he let them know that the Messiah must indeed suffer many things. And he did this for a specific reason. James Edwards writes, a wrong view of Messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. The disciples were picturing an earthly throne and kingdom, and this led them to think about the earthly influences that they could potentially have as they served alongside Jesus. And this is why our Lord's rebuke to Peter, and we learned last week, it wasn't just him rebuking Peter, but it was actually a rebuke to all 12 of them as they were following Peter and the Lord, right, in support of Peter's, uh, Peter's uh, conclusion and Peter's rebuke. And this is why the Lord responded so strongly. 
And he told them that you are setting your minds on man's interest and not God's. How can they do this? Likewise, when you and I are tempted to set our minds on man's interests and not God's, how might the passage that we're going to study today help us to recalibrate, recalibrate spiritually? The answer comes in the Lord's prescription. And you're going to notice in your outline, we're going to be looking at this from four different angles. We have the prescription, the paradox, the penalty, and the promise. Let's start with the prescription of personal cost, which is letter A in your outline. Look again at verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples. And he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The first thing you and I should take notice of is the conditional aspect of verse 34 that's introduced by the word if. There are conditional aspects to following Christ. They are for anyone or any man, depending on your translation, which makes the challenge unrestricted and open to all. The conditional demands of discipleship set forth here are not only for the 12, but for all of his disciples. They weren't only for the, the first Christians, but they were for Christians of every age. And the first con condition is our denial of self. A true disciple must no longer make his own interests or his personal desires the supreme concern of his life. As one commentator shared, he or she must turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. And this is a very strong word in the Greek, to deny yourself. It can even mean to utterly deny or disown. And so there's a great paradigm shift when somebody becomes a, di a disciple that takes place. Their mindset is changed. They go from being egocentric, right, or self-centered to being theocentric or God-centered. That's what happens and needs to take place in the mind of the believer. That's the radical transformation of a person whose heart is born again. They're even humbled by the fact that I've been living my life so selfishly. I have not cared about God. I have not cared about his people. Right? It's radical. God works in such a way that a believer is freed from being egocentric, from being self-willed, and they become God-willed, freed to battle selfish ambitions and to start pursuing godly ambitions. And we know that this doesn't take place overnight, does it? It happens progressively in our sanctification. And there will and should always be battles taking place. Our new nature in Christ allows us to serve selflessly instead of self-fleshly. And I introduced that word to you, my created term, last week. Self-fleshly. And that's what happens when we're selfish. It is the, the, the rising up of our flesh. It, it has us resort back to the, the old person, the old nature, right? When we've been changed to be theocentric and Christ-centered in our thinking. That's what the flesh does. It serves itself. My comfort, my convenience, my glory, 
my pride, my, my, my. And the Lord's prescription of personal costs is calling you and I to be free from me. Be free from me. That's the mindset that we're to have. In fact, I'll summarize it this way. And if you want a gauge of how, how you're maturing in Christ or how you've grown over the years, that is a, a summary of, of, of a statement of, that you can lay over your spiritual life and, and ask your spouse or ask someone in your care group to, to really evaluate you in those terms. Are you free from me? Are you free from yourself? And in our context, the disciples were being influenced by the leaven of Herod. It was the leaven of social status that was tempting them to think about how they could be recognized or how they might be able to make their own names great. And this serves as the backdrop to the lesson on personal cost here. And this is why Jesus was always constantly teaching them, always instructing them. And they're, they're, they're passages that I don't, we don't even have to turn there to read them because they're so ingrained in our thinking. If, if, if you know the Gospels, right? If, if you want to be first, you need to make yourself last. If you want to be great, make yourself a servant of all. His lessons can be summarized in one simple expression. Be free from me. You must deny yourself. And this truth and condition drives at the very heart of the gospel and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see evidence of it in perhaps what could be one of the most powerful passages in the New Testament in Philippians 2. And I want to invite you to turn there. It's a familiar text, but you need to see it so that your heart can be encouraged and refreshed by it again. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says this, do nothing from selfishness. This word can also be translated selfish ambition. Or empty conceit can also be translated vain glory. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, if you want to talk about something that absolutely goes against everything that our culture preaches today, it can be found right here in this passage. Self-promotion, serving yourself, looking out for yourself, pampering yourself, taking care of yourself, enjoying yourself, living life for yourself. Serving the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Man, did the disciples need to hear this. And so do we, right? So do, so do our own hearts. This passage aligns perfectly with the passage in Mark 8 and what Jesus is ultimately emphasizing to them and to us. The Lord knows that all disciples will be tempted to serve their own personal interest. And the 12, they already had this attitude that was working and festering in their own hearts, right? 
as they were thinking about how they can be closest to Jesus and how they can be the greatest. And likewise, we have selfish attitudes that arise within our hearts. And so question for you, what is the answer to their selfishness? What is the answer to your selfishness and to mine? Paul records the answer in Philippians 2.5 that says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And this attitude in verse 5, it actually looks forward and, it, and backward, okay? It looks backward to what was just shared in verses 3 and 4, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility of mind regarding the interests of others more important than yourselves. And it also looks forward to Christ and his example and his fulfillment in verses 6 through 8. It was and is an attitude of genuine humility that led Jesus, according to verse 26, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos, taking the form of a slave, a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is our example. He's our example in every way. And I, I don't think that we see it too often, but there, there was Jesus on a time frame? On a ministry time frame, we talked about how God was orchestrating all things and how every single ministry detail is accounted for. And perhaps there were days where Jesus wished that he could have spent more time here or more time there. And there were desires and, and, and things that Jesus died to. You want an example? I'll give you one. Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. And he says to the Father, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. That word will can also be translated desire. And we see an example firsthand. And though Jesus was never tainted, his thinking was never tainted by sin, he still genuinely died to his desire to have the cup of the Father's wrath pass him by. And this builds a natural bridge to the next condition that you'll see under the prescription of personal cost. And that our Lord provides in, in 834. First, Jesus says a disciple must deny himself. And then second, take up his cross. And when we talk about our cross to carry, and that's what I labeled the, the sub point. Underneath there, you'll see it, the second one. There's a great deal of confusion amongst Christians when it comes to this expression. Perhaps you've even heard somebody share that expression. Well, this is the cross I'm carrying. Or maybe you've even shared that expression yourself. Somebody's going through difficult circumstances and they say something like that. Oh, this is the cross that, that, that I'm bearing. Does this reflect an accurate understanding of what Jesus is teaching here? What are our crosses? Are they simply hardships or trials? 
Or is there more to understand here? D. Edmund Hebert writes, The reference is not to the common sufferings experienced in life, but to the shame and suffering which the disciple assumes because of his relationship to Jesus and which can be escaped by denying that relationship. R. Kent Hughes adds additional insights when he writes, It is typical to think of a nutty boss or an unfair teacher or a bossy mother-in-law as our cross, but they are not. Neither can we properly call an illness or a handicap a cross. A cross comes from specifically walking in Christ's steps, embracing his life. It comes from bearing disdain because we are embracing the narrow way of the cross that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, referencing John 14, 6. It comes from living out the business and sexual ethics of Christ in the marketplace and world. It comes from embracing weakness instead of power. It comes from extending oneself in difficult circumstances for the sake of the gospel. And then listen to this. This is so good. Our crosses come from and are proportionate to our dedication to Christ. Difficulties are not an indication of cross-bearing. Difficulties for Christ's sake are. We need to ask ourselves if we are having any difficulties because we are following closely after Christ. I read that in my office this week and was preparing this message and it was like, wow. You know, because I, I look at my own life, raising four kids, right? Young kids and all the sickness and all the turmoil and all the challenge that comes with that. And, and I think in many ways I have thought about that as the, you know, the cross that, 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 I, that, that I'm carrying. You know, the, the difficulties or when this circumstance comes up with, you know, I, I, you guys know my mom's older. I'm the youngest of eight kids, so she's struggling with her health. We don't know how much time, you know, but really how much time she's going to have left. And so just thinking about the, the difficulty of that and the, the weight of that, right? And you guys have your own lives too. They're filled with trials and difficult circumstances. And we need to understand this, that there's a difference between crises and crosses, okay? We, we need to understand that. Life is filled with crises. In fact, we, can, we know that every single person on this planet faces difficult circumstances, right? But we wouldn't say that they're all carrying a cross. Why? Because they're all not identifying with Christ. There's not spiritual implications coming into play that determine that, 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 that help them Right, that, that help us to understand and know what a true cross is. They, they've rejected the cross. It's not about serving. Now, I thought about this, and I want to make sure that I delineate because there are ways that some of our crises do turn into crosses. You know, just even the, the predicament, well, let's just, we're so many young families we can even talk about raising our children, you know, disciplining our kids, right? 
pointing them to Christ and the gospel, disciplining them for, for the purpose of pointing them and helping them to see their sin and need Christ. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm trying to help us to, to, to clearly see that there is a way for some of the crises to bleed over and have uh, cross-like implications. Am I making sense? I hope I am. But the, um, you know, I was trying to think of another example, and here I am just shooting from the hip. You know? Um, yeah, maybe that's a bad idea. <laughs> but... Um, you know, the, 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 the life, there are matters and issues in, in life that are going to come up, you know, as it relates to my desire to reach my mom and have her profess faith in, in Christ, right? She's, so she has this illness, but the cross that I could bear is to reach her for the gospel before it's too late, right? But you know what I think happens, and if we're just honest with ourselves, I think that our lives become so consumed and, and so busy with crises that there aren't opportunities for crosses. And if I could boil it all down, crosses really help us to identify with Christ. And to embrace persecution and suffering for the sake of others. Crosses reflect a willingness to suffer for Christ and for others. And so we need, it's, it's good to ask ourselves the question, do you and I so identify with Christ in this world that we suffer for it? What crosses are you and I currently bearing and taking up as a result? Are we suffering from daily crosses, or are we suffering from daily crises? And we're living in an, an evangelical culture right now that, to be honest with you, it's, it's more popular to wear a cross than to carry a cross. You know what I'm saying? You'll identify with, with Christ, and you'll wear the cross around your neck, and you, you want people to see that you're a Christian. And that, that, that really is a that's external evidence, right? But when we get to the heart of the matter, what sacrifices am I willing to make for God? What sacrifices am I willing to make for other people? That's where crosses come into play. And this is how we can challenge the complacent or dare I say, lackadaisical mindset that exists in the church today. And as mentioned last week, this passage shatters the concept of convenient Christianity. It isn't convenient. It isn't. First, it involves our denial of self. Second, it involves us taking up a cross. And third, it means following him, or as your outline states, our pursuit of Christ. A believer is not only to follow Christ in the way of suffering, but also in the way of service. And there's a logical progression here. I want you to see it. Verse 
think about this practically, just looking at this passage, okay? There's a logical per, per, uh, progression in the prescription that the Lord Jesus Christ is, is sharing here. First, it's a denial of self, right? Selfish interests, selfish ambitions, okay? That, that paradigm shift that takes place. Then it is um, picking up a cross. It's being spiritually focused to make sacrifices. And then what's that, what's that do? It frees us up to follow Christ. And when we follow Christ, we're not just following him in the way of suffering, but we're also following him in the way of service and discipleship. And this is like a, a doctor prescription, right? You, you write a prescription and there can actually be three layers of instructions on the prescription. But in the end, what's the doctor's goal for you? It's your, it's your spiritual health and vitality. And it's all one prescription. And this is what's taking place here with, with this verse in Mark 8, 34. It's, it's one prescription given to us from the great physician. It's for our spiritual health and vitality as a disciple. Yet the terms and conditions of service impact every facet of life. The prescription of personal cost has terms and conditions. Recently, I was down in Dallas to, to do a wedding. You guys know that. And I had to rent a car to get from the airport to the wedding rehearsal. My flight got into Dallas on Friday night about a little after 4 p.m. And the wedding rehearsal was at 5 p.m. And it was going to be close to an hour of drive time, considering the time of day and, and the traffic, basically the rush hour traffic. So I didn't check a bag. I just had my carry-on. So I plotted this out. And as soon as the plane landed, I, I got off and, and made the scurry and got, got to the shuttle that took me out to the rental car place and... By God's grace, I show up and there's nobody at the counter. So that was a blessing. And I go and I have my reservation out already. And I'm like, here you go. I got a car reservation. The guy's like, oh, yep, great. He goes back. He opens up a drawer. He pulls out a key to the car. He comes forward. And I'm just like reaching for that key. And I was like, oh, great. You know, I'll bring it back full. Don't worry about me. And he's like, oh, wait, before, before you go, I have to cover the terms and conditions of service with you. And I was like, Okay. And so there was an electronic screen, and I had to check the boxes as he's going through these. And so he says that, you know, you, you're responsible for bringing the car back in the same condition that it left the lot in. Yes, check. Um, you have insurance. Yes, check. Um, you're going to bring it back with a full tank of gas. Yes, check. And then all these other miscellaneous questions. He's asking me, um, do you need a car seat? And I, I'm looking around. I thought some, maybe some of my kids followed me to Dallas or something. And, you know, just jokingly, I want to be like, oh, yeah, a couple of my kids are in my garment bag right here. Um, I'm going to need a couple car seats. But he's asking because he doesn't know where you're going, if you're going to pick up kids or whatever, your family. And so he's going down these things, and it's just absolutely painful. And what am I saying? Just give me the car. Give me the car. I got to go. I'm already going to be late. Right? 
Anyone else had that experience? Terms and conditions? You're downloading, you know, the, the latest version of Adobe or whatever. There's, there's a format with a computer program and, and there's, it just keeps going. It's pages after page after page. And what do we do? What do we do? Do we read them all? Do we take our time? Do we go through it? Do we consider the terms and conditions? We don't. We don't, do we? We just check the box. In Mark 8:34, Jesus, in, in a summary statement, is providing the terms and conditions, right? He's, he's providing a single verse to help us to understand. But listen, there is fine print that we have to take the time to read to know what the terms and conditions are. And the implications impact every facet of life. Who you can and who you cannot marry. Who can be your friends and who you're not supposed to fellowship with. How you treat your spouse, how you raise your kids, how you respond to your employer, it's all in there. And it comes at a high cost. The gospel call comes at a high cost. The Lord Jesus Christ says that you must hate yourself to be a disciple. That I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. And that a man's enemies will even be within his own household. And that you must acknowledge me before men. Because if you don't acknowledge me before men, I won't acknowledge you. And on and on and on, right? It's in there, right? It's in there. And those are the biblical terms and conditions. And that's the paradox of the gospel. Is it not? Is that the paradox of the gospel? We all know that the gift of salvation is a free gift of God's grace. It can, of his grace. It can never be earned. It can never be merited. Amen? Amen. We applaud that, and that will never change. But what we lose sight of is the, the call of commitment and dedication to Christ that's required of us when we come to God on his terms. It's right there. It's right there. And this is a natural segue to the paradox of personal cost that Jesus shares starting in verse 35. Let's look at it together. Jesus says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And there's a really, and this is seminary to some degree, cool chiastic structure that's taking place in this verse. And I want to pull it up so that you can actually see it on PowerPoint because it helps us understand and, and see the verse with greater clarity. This is the paradox of personal costs. If you live in allegiance to yourself and this world, then you will lose your life will be meaningless and without purpose. It will be spent on vainglory and worldly treasures that are going to be destroyed in the end. 
Every unbelieving life is a losing life. Every single one. Yet this is what the world entices us to live for. To live for the moment. Save yourself. Love yourself. Pamper yourself. One commentator said, Narcissism is the order of the day as multitudes ease their souls into a living death by the respectable vice of selfishness. A society of keepers inevitably becomes a society of losers. End quote. And it's not just our society. It's, it's every society around the world that's living for temporal matters instead of eternal ones. And Jesus says that if you believe that having your own way, that if you believe having life on your terms, that if you want to be your own boss so that you can do and live life without having to surrender to his lordship, that you'll lose your life. However, this is where the second half of the verse comes in. If you will yield your life to him, if, if you will give up total control over all that you have and all that you are, you'll actually save it. And from a human perspective, this doesn't make any sense. But from an eternal viewpoint, Nothing else can make sense. You have a choice. You can live your life as you see fit. You can call your own shots. You can be your own boss. You can be your own man. You can do as you please, living life on your terms. But in the end, you're going to lose your life. And you're going to find that not only is there no true joy on this side of the cross, but eternal destruction waits on the other side. And yet Jesus continues. He continues with the paradox. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If you embrace Christ's condition of service, if you'll deny your own will and surrender to his lordship and follow him faithfully, not only can you experience what true joy on this side of the cross, but we have eternal life that awaits for us on the other side. Dr. Robert Thomas at the Master's Seminary, he used to use this old idiom, and you guys have perhaps heard it before, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? Everyone's heard it at some point, I'm sure. If you're hearing it for the first time, we're going to do our best to get you out more. But... And, and Dr. Thomas, he actually thought about that, that idiom, and he said, if we truly understand what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 8.35, what's he say? The idiom should say this, finders, weepers, losers, keepers. Missionary Jim Elliott is also known for an extraordinary quote, and we have that on PowerPoint. I want to read it to you. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And that, my friends, is a powerful quote for the Christian life. 
And let me tell you a little bit about Jim Elliott. He didn't just say those words, he lived those words. In 1956, while in Ecuador, at the, the, the Carare River, right, in, in this general vicinity, he was sharing Christ with a native tribe, and the Ecuadorian native tribe killed him and the five other missionaries that were with them. Right there. He was willing, right, to lose his life for Christ and the gospel. Well, Jesus expands on the paradox of personal cost in verses 36 and 37 when he asks, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And, and think about these questions just at face value. These were questions that the, the Lord was sharing with the 12 and those that were surrounding them could hear. What will you give in exchange for your soul? Even if you could, and imagine this for a moment, craft out the, the ideal life for yourself in every single way. I'm talking about the dream job in a dream house with the dream kids and the dream spouse, okay? And that rhymes. No, I won't start. <laughs> All right, and I mean everything from, from life's perspective gets thrown your way, that you can have everything ideally set up in every single way. That it could be a giant appeal, the greatest appeal ever made that this world could, could send your way to your flesh. Every enticing thing, the absolute best that this world has to offer, And imagine at the end of that experience, after living a few decades, being and doing as you please, you die. And you find yourself without Christ, living in a state of eternal torment and judgment. Would those few years, even those decades of pleasure, be worth that exchange? That is what Christ is saying here. I mean, and we are so blessed as believers. Believers, we see this truth. Friend, that's, that's not a dream. That's a scheme. And, and the devil has blinded millions upon millions of people, right, to pursue that dream. To pursue the material things of this world. Willie Somerset Maugham. He's just one of many, many examples. And there's countless others. What would you give for your very own soul? One pastor asks, are you willing to trade your eternal soul for some alcohol or drugs? Are you willing to trade your soul for some sexual relationships? Are you willing to trade your soul for the right to do as you please and live on your own terms? Are you willing to spend eternity in hell for a few years of being your own God? 
If you are lost, that is exactly what you are doing. You are trading the most valuable possession that you have for the trinkets of this world. You have bought into the lie of the devil, and you are going to lose all you have and all you are in a place called hell. That's sobering. That's sobering, and that's why we've even come, and this brings us right to the penalty that Jesus is going to share in verse 38 when he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. There is a great consequence for rejecting Christ in the gospel. And Jesus uses a specific word here for those who reject his message. He refers to those who are ashamed of him in his words. And this word means unwilling or restrained because of fear of shame, ridicule, or disapproval. And it refers to those who are unwilling to come to Jesus for salvation, who will not follow him because they refuse to accept him or his message. And when a person comes to Jesus and begins to follow him, there's a price to pay. A true believer understands the prescription of personal costs. They understand the paradox of personal costs. A true believer understands that. And you know what my greatest fear is, church? That there are so many people who think they're Christians that aren't. And I'm not just talking about our ministry. I'm talking about across the world. Why? Because when they heard a gospel, and there, there are many false gospels that are out there, the Word of Faith movement leading the charge with health, wealth, and prosperity preaching, which is a pandemic. Across, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable across the continent of Africa. Talk to David Beakley about that sometime. He's just, it's, it's, it's just nauseating. But that even in American churches, with all the easy believism, with just walk the aisle, with just pray the prayer, with just um, you don't want to go to, to hell, right? Make the decision today. And no mention of the prescription of personal cost. That it will cost you what? What does it cost us? Everything. Everything. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our allegiance, our affections, his lordship, his authority. We're the slaves. He's the master. There's conditions. The believer rejects the world and its ways, choosing instead to give their life away for the sake of Christ and the gospel. The believer must be willing to be persecuted, reproached, and even hated for the cause of Christ. And not everyone is willing to pay that price. Not everyone is willing to pay that price. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you the most frightening scripture. And there's a couple of them that just instill fear in me. Matthew 7.23, many will cry out, Lord, Lord, and he will respond, I never knew you. Depart from me. 
You practice lawlessness. I never knew you. And why will that happen? Why, 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 why will that happen? Because, because you know what happened? When, when somebody shared the gospel with them, they, they made the opportunity so easy for them that all they had to do was check the box. I don't want to go to hell box. Just check it. Right? And they didn't help them to calculate the cost. They didn't help them to understand what the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches us. The chief end of man is not to go to hell. Is that it? Oh, wait, I got that wrong. The chief end of man is the glory of God and for us to enjoy him forever. And how do we bring him glory? Well, there's a prescription for it. There's, there's a lesson for us. There's conditions for us. And those who refuse the high cost of following Christ prove that they want no part of him or his message. And they're going to face, they're going to face judgment. But for those who have heard a true gospel, those who have responded, those who understand that the, there is a high cost, that it does cost us everything, that you understand the prescription, you understand the paradox, right? For those in Christ, our passage ends with the promise that should give great hope and will serve as a very fitting conclusion for us. Jesus says in Mark 9.1, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's an intro. That's a sound bite and a taste of the passage that we get to go to next week. And we're going to get introduced, but we know that promise that's been given to us. Right? If we have come to him and our full allegiance is to him and our lives that we've surrendered everything to him, then we won't taste death. And when we breathe our last, we will be with him in glory. So for those who understand and respond to the high cost of following Christ, who by the grace of God, and I don't want to lose sight of this, by the grace of God are able to yield to the prescription of personal cost, to understand the paradox who live a life of denying themselves, taking up their cross daily and following him, Jesus says the glory of God's kingdom will be our reward. And we're going to hear more about this next Sunday when we hear the message on the Mount of Transfiguration. Glory to God in the highest. Well, let's close our time in prayer. Father, what a gift of grace from you that we can spend this time and in many ways be sobered. There is so much poor teaching. There's so much compromised truth in the culture in which we're living today that to even hear a message, I know from my own heart, my own study this week was, was very sobering. And so... I know I'm not alone, even with those in the room who have heard and embraced this message. It's sobering. 
but yet you want us to see with clarity. It's what your scriptures teach us through and through as you instructed your disciples throughout. And as you instruct us today, you want us to see with clarity. You want us to know the cost. And you led the way. It was you who paid the highest cost first and put into perspective the high cost that we would eventually pay. And oh, how it fails in comparison. Oh, how it fails in comparison. But when we come to you and we abide in you and we live for you according to your terms, according to your conditions of service, there's joy. Life is hard. There will be crises and crosses and that will never change. But we pray, Father, that as a church family, as we embrace the crises that this fallen world may bring us, that we could turn them into crosses. That we could be testimony, that we could be salt and light for your namesake and use it and champion it as an opportunity to glorify you and to glorify Christ and the sake of the gospel. That's our heartbeat. For that to happen, we have to surrender all. Help us, Father, to consider the ways, just even in our workplace, how we can continue to be salt and light, that we wouldn't get consumed with the financial reports and all the other business matters of the workplace, but that we would look around and see the person in the next office, the next cubicle, the next building over as a soul in need, that we would walk in fidelity, that we would make great sacrifices for your namesake. And we praise you for the example of Jim Elliott. We praise you for the example of Marcus and Amy Denny. We praise you for the example of Gina and Julia. We praise you for the example of the Cogburns and others who have given up so much for your sake, who are willing to carry that cross for Christ and the gospel. Please continue to grow us, we pray. And we'll celebrate you and the grace that you share in our lives as a result. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Christ. Amen.